Welcome to Insignium Bits, conversations about breakthrough, innovation, and transformation. So the next person you're going to be with is just, I want you to know, delightful. And delightful doesn't mean that she's not serious and has a great impact uh, to make. Dr. Natalie Nixon is considered one of the foremost strategists on the future of work, designing work and work environments, I'll let her go into that, um, that amplify growth and business value and stimulate innovation. She was selected as one of the top keynote speakers, 50 top keynote speakers of 2022. Her work is actionable in the area of design. Marketing guru Seth Godin has said that Natalie Nixon can help you get unstuck and unlock the work you were born to do. Now he's the author of the award-winning The Creativity Leap, Unleashing Curiosity, Improvisation, and Intuition at Work. And her work has been featured in Forbes and Fast Company. And she advises leaders on transformation by applying wonder and rigor. I love that, wonder and rigor, right? Uh, to amplify growth and business value. So with my, it's really my pleasure to introduce Dr. Natalie Nixon. What I'm going to talk about today are some ideas around the future of work. So I'm starting with an image that actually went quite viral in December of 2020. It was on the cover of the December 7th, 2020 New Yorker magazine. And it's um, an illustration by the comic book illustrator Adrian Tomini. And it's called Love Life. And in this image, you see a young lady who's preparing for a virtual date. She's got a cocktail in one hand. She's got her smartphone device in the other. Uh, her laptop is on a stack of books. Um, you'll notice that there's some wine bottles on top of the fridge, some open, some unopened. Her sink is full of dirty dishes. What I love about Adrian Tomini's work is how detailed it is. If you look really closely, you'll see that she did not shape her legs for this date. Um, and behind her makeshift screen, uh, her bed is unmade. Now, this image went viral, and I love this image specifically because what it speaks to are the blurred boundaries that we are all needing to navigate. Blurred boundaries between work and home, home and play, play and learning, learning and work. And in the midst of that intense ambiguity, we need to figure out a new true north, a new way to figure out this VUCA environment, this hyper-VUCA environment that is volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. Um, I will do certain nods to Philly. I'm from Philly. And um, just FYI, the VUCA, that mnemonic actually came from um, the uh, uh, college, the, the Army College, uh, just down the road, down Route 76 in Pennsylvania, in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And like so many great corporate uh, frameworks, it actually initiated in our military. Um, because as you can imagine, in a battle environment, the landscape is incredibly volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And then corporate America said, that's a really good one. We need to adopt that. Now, in the midst of this ambiguity in these hybrid work environments, and I heard this from the awesome remarks of Alan Murray. I loved his shifting our focus to really think about purpose and social impact and transparency. But still, we're trying to figure out how to negotiate this, these hybrid work environments. 
But I've been thinking a lot about the fact, I think we could fairly say that it's a relatively new concept that we go away from our homes to work. It's really only since the onset of the Industrial Revolution that we get up in the morning and we have to travel quite some distance to go to work. And what's fascinating to me is that a lot of ways we've come full circle. So centuries ago, when an agrarian economy was the norm, you got up in the morning, you did your ablutions, you had a little something to eat, you walked over the threshold, and boom, you were at work. And most days, I get up in the morning, I do my ablutions, I have a little something to eat, and I cross the threshold and I'm at work. So I think if we think of it in that historical context and how relatively new and recent it is to travel into an office, to have to adapt to office culture, then it helps to assuage our fears about our ability to navigate this hybrid context. As you all have been aware, on the, on the heels of the COVID-19 pandemic, we also settled into the great resignation and the great reshuffle. And I had this hypothesis that the great reshuffle is actually a symptom of people needing and wanting to work in much more meaningful and purpose-driven ways. And so I put a question out there on LinkedIn. This is a copy of my post that I posted back in February. And I said, listen, if you went through an interesting sort of change and transition during the COVID-19 pandemic, I'd love to chat with you. I'd love to hear your story. And um, I've so far um, had about 20 interviews with a range of people. And the common theme already that is surfacing among all those people is that the reasons that they shifted not to become an entrepreneur necessarily, and in fact, some people went into a, a new type of corporate environment, but the difference is that they went into environments where they felt seen and heard. And this is really significant as we think about the sorts of work environments that we need to prepare for our current employees and teams and for the people who are lined up next. And that led me to start to, I, I use my speaking and my writing as a way to prototype ideas. So that led me to publishing this article in Fast Company about something I was calling invisible work. Not the gendered invisible work that we often hear about women, where women's work equity is invisible. And my friend Eve Rothke, author of Fair Play, has done a tremendous amount of awesome work about gender inequity and work. But I was talking about a different type of invisible work. The work that we do that's not on the Zoom call, that's not in front of the whiteboard, that doesn't yet have actual tangible metrics, but I have some thoughts about that, that is really key to our productivity. And part of what I want to share today are some of the elements of that invisible work. I also then published an article in Forbes magazine about the value of solitude. Not the kind of alienating loneliness that has affected a lot of us during the, the, the pandemic, but solitude that helps us to recharge, to reset, and that more of the neuroscience of creativity, which you'll hear a lot more about this afternoon, is really demonstrating the ways that our brains are much more effective is when the neurosynapses of our brain and the inner regions of our brain, not just in the frontal neocortex, are allowed to engage. And that's only when we can step away and let things marinate. So I'm a frameworks nerd. 
Um, I love doodling up different types of two-by-twos and ways to conceptually think about things. So I'm going to share quite a bit of that with you today. But that led me to think about something I'm calling the flourish trajectory. And the flourish trajectory is still a work in progress, but right now what I'm thinking about is that it's really about the intersection of the fourth industrial revolution, PS, we're in the midst of it, the train has left the station, right? The fourth industrial revolution is characterized by ubiquitous technology. So my Alexa app at home helps me to play music, helps me to uh, uh, speak to my husband, who's on my office is on the second floor, his office is, is in the basement. Um, if our daughter doesn't know the answer to something, she Googles it. Uh, that's powered by artificial intelligence. A lot of surgeries in hospitals today are being done by robotics, right? So technology is ubiquitous. And that combined with the great reshuffle, the intersection of those two trajectories is what I call the opportunity to flourish. It is our flourish opportunity. And we've been hearing a lot of discussion about languishing, right, for example. Well, the counterpoint to languishing, which we all have an opportunity with, is about flourishing. Now, flourishing is not something that was on the top of our minds when this Harvard Business Review article came out in um, March of 2020. Uh, this is a photograph from an interview with Scott Baron sorry, an interview between Scott Baranato and David Kessler. David Kessler is one of the world's foremost thought leaders on the topic of grief. And he said, basically in this interview, that we typically think of grief in terms of five stages. Denial, anger, bargaining, sadness slash depression, and finally, acceptance. And we kind of end on a plateau. But what David Kessler offered is that there's actually a sixth stage of grief. And the sixth stage of grief is meaning and purpose. And I love that because it allows us to, instead of ending on a plateau, to end on an uptick. And the opportunity now in this moment of this convergence of the Great Reshuffle, the Fourth Industrial Revolution, to flourish is to identify meaning and purpose. And as a creativity strategist, I'm super clear that, that meaning and purpose is all embedded in creativity. But that requires very new and different metrics for productivity. I'm going to share a few in the next slide, but I'll also share them later in my remarks in the terms and in the form of some, you'll see this is very um, common with me, in the form of, of questions. So here are some of the new metrics of productivity that I've been playing around with. They include things like intuition, the value of pausing, the role of play inquiry-based leadership, and embodied work. All the things that we frankly have thought of as soft skills. Well, newsflash, soft skills are super hardcore. And the reason why soft skills are hardcore is because in the midst of the fourth industrial revolution where tech is ubiquitous, and there's a lot of casualties, right? There's a lot of jobs that are being lost and that will continue to be lost. The upside of that, the silver lining of that, is that it gives us, and, and, and Alan spoke about this, it gives us much more opportunity to bring more of what makes us fully human to work. And those companies, teams, and leaders who figure out first how to make space for the human, 
how to help us to flourish, how to make space for creativity, will be the ones that attract and retain the best and most dynamic talent. Now, I'm a Gen Xer, and a lot of what I was conditioned to be prepared for, for, for work was to show up to work from the chin up, right? To know what's the answer, and what's the answer yesterday, and to be solutions oriented, and to be super, super rational. I've just been reading a wonderful book called The Extended Mind. I highly recommend this book by, I just blanked out on the name, I'll probably remember it <laughs> by the time I finish speaking today. But uh, The Extended Mind offers a very interesting new metaphor about the brain. The old metaphors of the brain were brain as computer, inputs and outputs. The next metaphor of the brain has been brain as muscle. You just exercise it hard and you work hard and your brain will get stronger and, and more vibrant. But the challenge with those two metaphors of the brain is that it's a bit disembodied from us. And so what, in the extended, Annie Murphy-Paul is the author of the extended mind. What Annie Murphy-Paul recommends is that we think of brain as the metaphor of the magpie. And she tells a short story about in Seoul, South Korea, there was an electronic grid shutdown. And when they investigated the electronic grid shutdown, they learned that it was because a, a whole group of magpies had decided to ingeniously build their nests in all of the electrical wiring. Magpies are incredible. They will build nests not from grass and twigs and such, but they'll build nests from old discarded pieces of eyeglass and egg, an egg carton and, and that sort of thing. And once they figured out the problem, they got rid of the magpie nests and they went about their, their weeks. And then, what do you know, the magpies mate nests again. Her point, though, was that the magpie exists in the environment in which you can be ingenious and inventive. And similarly, she talks about the brain as embodied in this world. Remember that the spinal cord is an extension of the brain, right? It's an extension of the medulla oblongata. So instead of thinking about a model of the brain as just chin up, a lot of us have been thinking about moving towards a heart up idea of thinking about how we show up to work, which is great. It's good to encourage and invite people to show a little bit more emotion, to show a little bit more about their personal lives. That's highly um, necessary. But what I'm recommending is that beyond showing up to work from the heart up, we need to show up to work from the gut up. And gut up work is embodied work. It values intuition. So, for example, the vagus nerve is the longest cranial nerve extending from our brain down through our heart into our gut. So we literally are hardwired with this human antenna. So when we say, my gut is telling me, it really is. The beauty of gut of work is that it allows us to do a type of sense making that AI and big data and computers can't do yet. <laughs> so here's what I know to be true. In a world where we can work from anywhere and we can learn from anywhere, those organizations and leaders that work at the intersection of these three things will be the ones that not only thrive but also flourish. So the three domains that we've got to work at the intersection of are productivity, technology, and meaningful human experience. Now, most of my clients have two out of the three down. 
They're really good at the productivity and they're just trying to figure out the tech platform to work with. Or they're a tech firm and they're just trying to figure out um, how to increase their productivity. But especially since the onset of the pandemic and now because of the great reshuffle, they're really trying to figure out how do we also bake in meaningful human experience internally among our colleagues, but also externally in a client-facing way. Now, I'm a little biased, but in my view, creativity is the through line between all three of those domains. It's creativity that will help us connect productivity, technology, and meaningful human experience. So these are the two questions that I'll be focusing on today. Why should we consistently integrate creativity into our work? And then I'd like to end with some tactical, practical ways about how you can consistently integrate creativity into your work. To give you some context, here's another one of my nerdy frameworks that I just tinker around on. It's something I call CQ. So we've all heard of IQ. Right, our parents were really concerned about, maybe you as a parent were really concerned about your kid's IQ. More recently, we've also begun to embrace EQ, our emotional intelligence. Well, I believe that we also, especially in this specific moment, have an opportunity to build our CQ, our creativity quotient. And here's how I think about the CQ, because creativity is the engine for innovation. Without creativity, we will never innovate. And it is totally inside-out work. So it starts with gratitude. And the reason it starts with gratitude is because gratitude is the beginning of your entree into becoming a true penultimate systems designer and systems thinker. And here's why. When we're grateful, we begin to understand our interconnectedness to other people, right? We realize that the reason I have this clicker here is because someone designed it, another person engineered it. There was a manufacturing plant that put this together. There are a group of people who worked really hard to ship this somewhere. I had the ability and the means to buy it. I had the physical ability to use it, right? All of a sudden, I'm a node within a network. And that systems approach sparks humility in me. Once I am more humble, that really helps to spark curiosity. Because I don't have to be the smartest person in the room anymore. Once I understand my interconnectedness to others, once my humility begins to peak. Curiosity, as you'll hear me break down a little later, is really the precursor to empathy. Everyone has been talking a lot about empathy, and I get it. I agree, empathy is really important. But you cannot empathize with the soul unless you have the capacity to ask new and different sorts of questions. And finally, in an ideal world, empathy will lead to action. It will lead to that sort of stakeholder management approach of CEOs that Alan was talking about. So this is the CQ that I task us all to develop. And it really, because it's inside out work, it starts with gratitude. Over 30 years ago, Insignium pioneered the field of organizational transformation. Please continue to our library in the episodes page of your podcast tool of choice.